0: When crashes are so rare, they could have one-day training seminars about it. Now they're in a different place, obviously. I wrote a second book with a certified Boeing Airbus uh, pilot. He's allowed to write books about airplane crashes, but uh, his company's name doesn't want anything to do with it. My book is based on the most interesting stories I could find where my presentation is based on the most interesting graphics I can prevent. So a lightning strike for big planes is very common. They get struck about once a year, but it's a totally non-event, a solved engineering problem. Uh, They had to resolve the problem for the composite 787. And it's still a problem for, for small planes without weather radar. They'll get lost and wandered into a thunderstorm. A thunderstorm will structurally destroy any plane. They're simply not designed for that, but it hasn't happened to a big jet in the modern jet air since would be like the early 60s. Uh, one of the most common problems is uh, arcing in the fuel vapor space, which could be as simple as a, as a loose rivet. and uh, the tire's on fire there. Uh, it's completely safe to be sitting on the inside. The electrons all repel themselves and go to the outer surface so a human could touch a surface on the inside, although I'm not sure there's any exposed metal surfaces. Everything's covered with uh, plastics. And this is just another pretty picture, although I'll relate one accident is connected to it A DC-9 in 1972 was flipped over and crashed flying too close to a DC-10. And it's most definitely a problem for small planes. I found a couple examples of small planes being broken up in flight, getting too close to a big plane. And it sets the throughput on busy airports. They can simply only fly so close together. So these are little mini tornadoes up to 200 miles an hour the higher pressure air underneath the wing curls up and the lower pressure on top and creates these two mini tornadoes coming off the wingtips. One of the first things I like to explain is just how survivable an airplane crash is. Uh, there are 446 DC-10s made, 27 were destroyed in crashes, but only four had total loss of life a terrorist bomb, one flew in the mountain, and just two mechanical failures that were clearly engineering issues. And the remaining 23 airplanes destroyed in crashes, which means it's, uh, it's essentially like a car being totaled in an accident. It's beyond its economic repair price. Uh, of the remaining 23, even if it's broken into two or three sections, of the time, 90% of the passengers survive. So, uh, the instructions they give you actually are important and can save your life. Everyone assumes everyone dies, so that's simply not the most common case. You can always impact hard enough to kill everyone. It's just usually not what's happening. Usually, it's a bad landing or a takeoff where they're closer to the ground at lower speeds. This is a the made-for-TV crash looks like a seat's being released. So that was an obsolete 727. The pilots ejected uh, before the crash landing. I think it was the Discovery Channel did that. And obviously, if you're near the break, you can whipsaw it pretty badly. And if your seat is released, it's like being in an accident without a, a seat belt on, but uh, it's most definitely a survivable crash. And uh, I like to point out this one afterwards. This one obviously hit harder because there's two fuselage breaks and only two fatalities, which brings me to this miracle crash of a wide-body L-1011 in uh, Everglades in 1972. Usually when a plane crashes, you can go to the crash site and point your finger and say, there's the the airplane. You'll either see a fuselage or maybe it's broken into two or three pieces. Uh, In this case, there's a debris field, no recognizable cross-section. And it's judged non-survivable, which is an important determination. If it's judged survivable, it triggers a big study of everything, an engineering study of how the structure performed to protect the people as well as how all the flight, what the flight crew did. So there's nothing to be learned by studying a plane this fragmented, it was judged non-survivable. Only problem is they had 77 actually survive. No one really knows why, no one cares. It's too fantastical to make any sense out of. And this brings me to the most Most severe, mostly survivable accident that I'm aware of, I've been studying these crashes for a number of years now, Uh, DC-10. It lost, uh, had a major uncontained failure uh, of the tail section and it ripped through all three hydraulic lines. You only need one hydraulic actuator on each of the control surfaces so each hydraulic actuator has a hydraulic line plus a backup hydraulic line. And there's three of them for redundancy. So if two of them break, you still have all the flight surfaces working where the third good one goes to, which is roughly one third or one half of the flight surfaces. So the plane is considered flyable with two broken hydraulic systems and half the flight systems, flight surfaces not responding and pilots actually practice that scenario in the simulator. Now, the three lines are separated widely on the plane for this very reason. So one event cannot take them out, but because of all the hydraulic actuators and the elevators and the rudders and the tail section, it's the only place on the plane where all three of them are pretty close together. So a hundred pound piece engine comes tearing out and wipes out all the hydraulics. They had very limited partial control by varying the thrust of the two engines. And we have a crash video. So the plane broke into three pieces before bursting in the fireball. Here you see it cartwheeling. So there's the three pieces. This is the cockpit section it was so badly damaged, they just assumed everyone was dead and didn't even go near it for 20, 25 minutes. It turns out that all the flight crew did in fact survive. So roughly two thirds of the 196 or 296 people survived. 75% survived the impact, two thirds survived the impact and fire including a baby placed on the floors instructed, which is still the procedure. They finally invented a baby seat, but it's not required because parents would have to buy an extra seat. FAA studied that and decided parents would be less likely to fly, and they'd be more likely to die in highway accidents. So they still don't require buying a baby seat, and you'd still be required to place the baby on the floor in a crash scenario. Here's the ground scar. And here's the recovered broken engine. So this piece went flying out. It's roughly three million pounds of centrifugal force when this thing's rotating at 3,600 RPM. So a third of it, it was like F equals M A with a million pounds on 100 pounds of force. And I'm actually the proud owner of such a piece. Uh, it's 1960s technology is worth more as a donation than an actual engine part. It's like uh, 260 pounds of aerospace grade titanium, about $1,000 a pound retail. There's a rather fierce competition between uh, General, Electric, General Electric and Boeing, or Pratt and Whitney. That was actually sent to me by a GE engineer. So let's take a look at a digital modern 777 and an analog DC-10. With increased computerization, there's uh, more sensors and more oversight. And the whole point of digitizing all that analog information is to shove it in a computer so it could be manipulated. So planes are definitely getting safer and safer, but uh, Sometimes a computer confuses things. We'll look at a couple of those examples. So here's your 777 with a bunch of computer screens and here's the DC-10 with all the analog gauges. So all the information's on the computer screens and obviously a lot more because you have a lot more sensors. Every generation of plane comes out with more sensors and more complicated software which is one of the reasons I'm not crazy about talking about the 737 MAX. It's uh, it's all proprietary software issues and, and piloting. So we look at the safety of the 777 and DC-10. Uh, there's been only five hole loss accidents with the DC-10. Surprisingly, you have a reasonable just a two thirds reduction in fatalities, but that's not really a fair comparison because one of those is the missing plane with a total loss of life and another one was struck by a missile. So uh, those are certainly hazards of flying, but uh, hey, we're engineers, there weren't engineering problems. If you delete the criminal acts, there were two crashes that killed just three people. And of those three that died, two of them died because they didn't have their seatbelt on during landing. And the third one was indeterminate. It might've possibly survived with a seatbelt on. So here's an example where the computer added to the confusion. And this is the case where uh, the seatbelts I just mentioned. So this unique flight, the pilot was landing, flying a 777 for the very first time. He's a very experienced Airbus pilot, but this is his first training flight on a Boeing 777. And his instructor had like 13,000 hours in a Boeing 777, but his very first flight as an instructor. And it turns out much of the automatic landing systems at the airport were shut off and the pilot pilot had to fly it more than a normal landing. And basically they got confused by the computer settings and didn't realize the auto throttle was not on, so it crashed on landing. And here's a rather unique case. Airbus 330 leaves Toronto, August 2001 bound for Portugal, and it runs out of fuel halfway over the Atlantic and glides 75 miles to a safe landing in the emergency uh, military, abandoned military runway in the Azores. They were very fortunate to find uh, an air landing strip where they did, although if a plane goes in the water under pilot control, that's most definitely a survivable event. Hasn't happened for decades now Usually, the ones in the news, they're totally fragmented upon severe impact with the ocean. But if the pilot has control, uh, people are expected to survive. In fact, the slides double as rafts. But anyhow, this is an example where the computers perhaps added to the confusion. So they lost all power because they ran out of fuel. And there is an emergency wind turbine to provide enough power to the so you can control the flight surfaces, so you can do a controlled glide. And you can barely see it over there. And what happened was there is a leak, and there's a there's a heat ex, a shell and tube heat exchanger between the uh, engine lubricating oil and the fuel. Uh, the oil heats up and it needs to be cooled, so that's done with the fuel flow. And because of the leak, there was more cold fuel flowing through the heat exchanger, which chilled the oil, which is the first odd indicator they the flight crew got, oil, lubricating oil colder than normal, which is uh, not exactly a direct indication of anything. Although my co-author on the second book, he said... Uh, as an older pilot, they learned more about flight systems. And they were taught to think engine leak or uh, fuel leak if you have low lubricating oil. And now with all the computerizations, most of the training is how to flip through the computer screens. So they all cool for 230 degrees or two, 149 degrees. And that puzzled them. They called home for help. So the airline had engineers on standby to address things like this. And the engineers didn't know, they were confused too, which in my mind is a total engineering failure in the sense that if you had something so common it used to be trained, uh, taught to pilots, why the heck can't the engineers keep track of these oddball unexpected things? That's the whole point of engineering backup. I guess I said all that. So what happened was uh, this engine was in storage and uh, for like a year and a half. And since over that time, they redesigned the hydraulic pump. And so there's a new hydraulic pump and a couple of new connecting hoses and tubes. So they changed out the engine in the middle of the night and didn't access the updated documentation. In fact, uh, they talked to the engine manufacturer on the phone and he offered to come in. They said, no, we don't need you. So basically they mixed and matched new and old hoses and tubes. And when it got pressurized and expanded a bit, there was a vibration rub that eventually leaked. And I forgot to mention, the pilots actually made it worse. They didn't follow the procedure, so they ended up, well, there's a fuel imbalance. Most of the fuel's in the wings. So with the fuel imbalance, he shifted fuel to the leak, leak, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. And if he followed the right checklist, he wouldn't have did that. And I like to talk about explosive decompressions because there's numerous interesting engineering issues that the Havilland Comet invented the problem in the 1950s. They were flying. uh, This is the first commercial jet plane, passenger plane. If you ever look at anything historical about the Boeing 707, they'll say it's the first successful passenger jet. This is the first unsuccessful passenger jet. So they're flying 50% higher, or they had more internal pressure because they were flying higher. So the design pressure is eight and a quarter, which is about the same as today. And they also had uh, engines mounted in the wings, which is kind of this is uh, the last of that version of plane. All all planes before then had. uh, engines mounted in the wing and Boeing for Air Force Bomber invented the pod-mounted engines. So anyhow, with uh, 50% more internal pressure, takeoff landing pressure cycles is most definitely an issue, but they didn't really understand all the ins and outs of fatigue design. And they believe that if they designed twice the design pressure, they can ignore fatigue. And that is a valid engineering approach if you understand exactly what the fatigue is. Uh, twice didn't work. Maybe th- this would work if you raised it high enough, but take a rather sophisticated fatigue analysis to figure out how high. But anyhow, they had multiple stress risers. They had uh, rivet, well, first of all, this is the first and only squarish window. They've never did that before or after. So you got this cutout with uh, more sharper corners than ever used before, and you got rivets very close to the edge of the cutout. And I like to compare this to uh, this is a photo of the Titanic, where uh, back then uh, riveting was a standard construction method for ships. It got uh, displaced in World War II. That was considered a big breakthrough in cost and. Uh, production time, but because rivets are welding degrades fatigue life, they never really got rid of rivets even today, except for maybe the composite planes, which are glued. So they're still using 19th century technology on airplanes because of fatigue life. They did, in fact, think of fatigue a little bit. In fact, they took a test. Section of fuselage and cycled it eighteen hundred times, eighteen thousand times, which actually delayed them from figuring out what happened because that they said, "Oh, obviously not fatigue because we over cycled the test section." The first failure fell out of the sky at over twelve hundred cycles, then had another one at nine hundred cycles. So it's like, what the heck? And the problem was before they did the metal fatigue cycling, they proof tested to the twice the eight and a quarter, they proof tested the 16 and a half PSI, which set up compressive residual stresses and completely invalidated the 18,000 cycle test. So if they would have proof tested the production planes, the 18,000 would be valid, but they didn't and it wasn't. So this is the first time they invented fatigue testing of the entire airplane So they built a water tank around the fuselage to pressurize it with water because they were afraid of the energy and compressed air, which is dangerous. And we're going to talk about a few examples shortly. And they'd use hydraulic actuators to mimic flexing of the wings and lift. So they just cycle this thing till it broke. And in fact, because of the increased air. I think I estimated there's like, uh, because of the compressibility of air, there's like 20,000 times more energy in compressed air to eight and a half psi compared to compressed water. And because of this fear of the energy of compressed air, Boeing actually uh, fatigue tested the 707 and the 727 in water tanks. After that time, they were confident enough to, to do air pressure testing air fatigue testing. But even today, if they proof test a section of fuselage, it's standard safety procedure to evacuate the building. So here's this uh, crack with the de Havilland water testing after just 3,000 cycles. And if it was pressurized with air, uh, basically the crack tip depressurizes because of the pressure pulse in water travels significantly faster than an air. If this had been a air pressure, the plane would have completely fragmented. The, the, the crack would run till it fragment the plane. In fact, some of those de Havilland Comet disasters, they're talking to the pilot and he's cut off in mid-sentence. That's how fast it's happened. It's exactly like sticking a, a pin in a balloon. And I guess I explained that. So Boeing's innovation to address this problem was add tear straps, which they added to the 707 and they've been using ever since. So the tear strap is just a band-aid that reinforces against the circumferential stresses. So the crack is supposed to propagate to the tear straps and turn the corner and the whole thing opens and blows out all the pressurized air and acts like a safety valve. So it's standard design procedure, a plane is safe to fly with a 40 inch fatigue crack. Uh, that's not only based on fatigue cycling, that's also reflects the largest damage they, they can imagine from a uncontained engine fragment tearing through the fuselage. So the rule is you can't fly with any fatigue cracks but it's supposed to be safe with 40 inches. And in 2009, Southwest fined millions for flying with fatigue cracks two, three, four inches long. I actually found a DC-9 that had a 39 inch fatigue crack in. No one knew it was there until they tore the plane apart for its uh, serious D-check maintenance where basically they, they strip off all the paint, take off all the upholstery and do a detailed inspection for metal fatigue. Which brings me to this uh, 1988 disaster, 737, at a 14 by 18 foot blast hole. Another example of explosive decompression, which also says something about the uh, survivability of bomb planes. And so nearly half the planes bombed in flight managed to safely land. Uh, although this is obviously outside of any rational design methodology, but, uh modern methods perhaps allowed it to hang together a little bit. So uh, a lot of bombings have failed, but I assume the modern terrorist is gonna have engineers on his staff. So I'm not sure that's a trend we can count on. So everybody survived this disaster, except for one unfortunate flight attendant standing near the blast hole. Everybody else had their seat belts on. There were popped eardrums, concussions, broken arms, stuff like that, but all things considered relatively minor. And uh, what was going on with this airline? They were flying short hops among the Hawaiian islands, so accumulating cycles much faster than all other 737s around the world. And they accused Boeing of not keeping track of how their planes are being used. So everybody was inspecting based on uh, calendar time and it worked because everyone was more or less flying the same. But these guys were accumulating faster cycles, so they should have their inspections judged based on uh, uh, takeoff landing cycles. And Boeing should have caught it and pointed it out. And they, and they knew they had a problem. Boeing already put out a advisory to do additional inspections. So the, They had two reasons to do more inspections because of additional cycles and because Boeing told them to. So the whole thing was totally preventable, but uh, well, here we are and it triggered a rather significant national design effort and some changes in rules, but Boeing already reinforced those lap joints before the accident. So this is on the first 291 737s. This is on the rest of what are we up to like, I don't know, 12, 14,000 by now. And this is uh, one of the early 737s of the Seattle Museum of Flight. You can see all these external patches. Here's one, here's one, here's another one. I don't know if you can see this one. It's pretty amazing how there's just patches all over this plane. So why didn't the flap form? Well, they had a glue joint, which actually is superior because there's no less concentration of uh, the rivet holes, but uh, the glue alone was supposed to support the pressure, but they also used rivets. They they had a redundant design, but the glue failed and didn't get caught in their cyclic testing during design because of uh, uh, surface corrosion of flying over the Pacific Ocean for years. And basically, They discovered they had to totally rethink how you design for metal fatigue, because what happened was you had uh, uh, micro cracks on the rivet holes all lined up, which totally invalidated the standard uh, fatigue design methodology. So this triggered a, a national research effort, and they changed design methods, design rules, And in 1998, they started full-scale fatigue tests, which is now mandated for all new planes. They were sort of doing that, it's just now codified. And this is the ribbing on a 737 to scale. There's extensive longitudinal and circumferential ribs and has nothing to do with pressure containment. The reason the ribbing is there and here's a 737 with all the upholstery removed, is uh, if there's an engine out, you have a massive torque on the fuselage and plane that has to be reacted on with the rudder. Uh, so the fuselage is only 36 thousandths of an inch thick. Sometimes I demonstrate the problem with the rolled up sheet of paper and I just, it crushes in compression on the bending compression side. So it'll buckle in compression because of the big moment. Uh, so the longitudinal ribs are there to reinforce against buckling when you have an engine and out situation. And the longitudinal ribs, they're pretty thin too. They'll also buckle. So the circumferential ribs are there every 20 inches to reinforce the longitudinal ribs. And they'll reduce pressure stresses, but only within an inch or two of the circumferential ribs. What I'm trying to show here this is when they had, uh, this is the Havilland Comet with engines mounted closer to the fuselage, the tail's a lot shorter. Because if engines go out, the moment arm between uh, uh, engine thrust and fuselage center line is a lot smaller than a modern plane. As they put the engines out further and further, they needed a much bigger tail to react against the engine out scenario. And actually, the, the design is more efficient as you move uh, the engine out further, because the weight of the engines counteract the bending stress of the lift. So it reduces the bending stress from lift. Of course, there's limits on everything. As you put the engines out further and further, you got diminishing structure. So eventually you need additional structure to reinforce that situation. All metal, all planes will fall out of the sky Metal fatigue, if you cycle them significantly beyond their design life. It's considered an engineering, a solved engineering problem. It's not supposed to happen. It still happens a little bit. Uh, You need human air. There's been a couple recent flaps forming that I'll talk a little bit about. Uh, Well, here's one example of a flap forming. So the flap formed like it's designed to and the human air, I think in this case, uh, Boeing, they they change where they mounted an external antenna, and they didn't do a detailed finite element analysis on that. So that was a design error. Usually, it's an inspection error, and or or manufacturing error. But you need a human error to screw up and crash the plane from metal fatigue. Even though they're all they all designed to fall fall out of the sky eventually if you keep cycling them. And here's some other decompression accidents. This plane broke up in the four pieces at uh, at altitude of 30,000 feet or whatever. And it was a tail strike 22 years earlier. They put a 120 inch by 22 inch patch and buried a scratch which sat there for 22 years growing a fatigue crack. And again, once it gets, reaches critical size, which all we know is something bigger than 40 inches because uh, they're not really testing to find uh, failure. They're trying to, all testing is to verify safe design, not to find out when things actually fail, which is considerably more complicated. But anyhow, the maintenance manuals have all kinds of rules on what you can repair, can repair what you can't repair. And if it's not allowed in the maintenance books, you're supposed to go to Boeing and get an engineered repair. So this one was clearly outside what the mechanics books permitted and there was no record of them having sought uh, instructions from Boeing. And also at that time, there were no rules, uh, damage tolerance, fracture mechanics rules applied to repairs. So since then, uh, they now have to do damaged towel and fracture design repairs, that probably would have caught this problem. And this is an uncontained engine failure out of DC-10 and a piece, here's, a, you can see shrapnel damage of the fuselage, a piece knocked out the window and a passenger got sucked out and he lost over the ocean. These are supposed to be old stories and not supposed to happen today, but one just happened in the Southwest Airline in 2018. And this case, uh, windscreen was sucked out at like 18,000 feet because the mechanic the night before, he eyeballed the screws and put in underside screws. So the pilot got uh, sucked out but he got his feet caught in the control column and according to the TV version, which I've kind of come to wonder about because I often end up correcting TV versions of these incidents and accidents, uh, two flight attendants wrestled his legs out of the control column and they kind of stood there holding them, trying to figure out how to get them back in the plane. And one flight attendant said to the other one, I can't hold them any longer, can you? No, I can't either. Should we let him go? Yeah, let's let him go. And the co-pilot said, no, don't let him go. He'll get sucked in the tail engine will have even more problems. And this is an improperly latched uh, cargo go- door on a 747. Uh, if you blow out uh, pressure in the cargo hold, uh, the floor will collapse. In fact, uh, DC-10 was lost in the 70s that way. It, the structural damage wasn't that bad, but it, it broke some control cables running to the tail section. So the pilots lost control and everyone died. And since then, they mandated blowout panels and the floorboards, which probably saved this plane. But because of the structural damage in the floor, still uh, nine passengers were swept out of the plane. And here's a view from the inside. They decided the problem was a uh, bad wiring, but uh, the ground crew kind of forced the door shut. He should have noticed it wasn't properly latched. And the blowout panels were activated. So the exact opposite of decompression is hypoxia, which happened on a Boeing 737 in 2005 in Greece. Everyone passed out, and the plane flew on autopilot. This is the actual plane, everyone's passed out there. The Greek Air Force is buzzing the plane, trying to figure out if they can make any sense out of the situation, the answer is no. And uh, there's a switch on the ventilation system. This part of my screen is blocked out. I can't read this because there's this AIAA logo here. Well, anyhow, there's three settings on this switch. This is an old analog 737. Uh, The digital ones don't have this problem. But there's three settings on the switch that controls the ventilation system. It's on, off, and alternate for uh, uh, an alternate uh, source. So uh, it's always supposed to be on, on. It's always, always on, on, on. The only reason to turn it off is if the mechanic is doing maintenance on the system. So he shut it off and failed to turn it back on. And uh, they faulted Boeing for being ambiguous with uh, the checklist for the mechanic. It said, uh, restore the control panel to its original settings. It did not specifically call out the switch and the pilots didn't notice it. Although uh, they're looking in the sunlight, and the other problem is there's a Cypriot pilot and a Greek co-pilot trying to debug the wrong problem in their non-native English while they're becoming hypoxic. So I talked to two 737 pilots about this switch, and I seemed to know more about the switch than they did. I couldn't believe it. I wondered what the heck's going on here. Did I manage to find the world's two dumbest 737 pilots? And I figured, no, they don't let stupid people fly these planes. But then it reminded me, one time I got to spend an entire week on an aircraft carrier. There's me staring the aircraft carrier. So everywhere I turned, my head was spinning with engineering questions. Finally, my host said, stop bugging us with engineering questions. Our job is to follow the procedures. So engineers write procedures, mechanics and pilots follow them, and sometimes bad things happen. And uh, incidentally, most everyone in the aviation community is willing to dismiss the missing plane as a criminal act Certainly hypoxia could explain lack of communication, but a hypoxic crew does not steer the plane repeatedly. There are minor course corrections as if someone was joyriding. And you can also explain what happened with a fire. Well, if a plane's on fire, the first thing they say is we're on fire, find me a landing immediately. And even if they're going in the ocean, it's like we're going down, come and get us. So uh, it's a criminal act. The problem was the investigators will not say anything in the absence of hard concrete facts. So with the investigators not saying anything, everyone's mind is running with all kinds of wacko conspiracy theories. It is some kind of criminal act, period. And I looked at crash testing, which was interesting. You can actually break up vertical versus horizontal crash testing. The structure and the humans both respond differently. So it it makes engineering sense to test separately for vertical crashing versus horizontal crashing. There's only been three full-scale crash tests of large commercial planes, two of them in the 60s. And uh, one of them, had they had a total lack of uh, breakdown of all their instrumentation, they recorded zero data. Uh, there is a one from the 80s we'll talk about shortly. It's more common to do a drop test. They'll take a section of a fuselage and drop it and take all kinds of recordings. So ejecting up is the same as crashing down. Both will compress the spine. And this is an actual photo of a Air Force pilot during a show He's not over the crowd like it looks here, it's just a funny angle, everything's safe, everyone lived, including the pilot. He ejected 140 feet off the ground and he shrinks two inches. He's in the hospital for observation, his wife shows up, he gets up to hug her and she's taller than she's supposed to be. Uh, so the Air Force, there's an altimeter air setting. So this is a dramatic opening of an air show, the very first event the pilot climbs straight up and then goes into a dive straight down and his recorded altitude was wrong. Faster than he can make any sense out of that, he he was able to fortunately sense there's something wrong and he's getting closer to the ground than he's supposed to. So he safely ejected just 140 feet off the ground. So the Air Force studied this and they concluded 7% of Air Force ejections result in spine fractures. And it's not only the acceleration of the ejection seat, which is a a design number. But if the plane's trying to pull out of a dive, it's uh, pulling acceleration two that adds to the acceleration ejection seat. So that's kind of a random number. So the two of them could exceed the human's uh, capacity. Of course, uh, you test humans, they're not, it's not like testing pieces of steel. you have tremendous statistical scatter. So the Germans studied this extensively during World War II when they started getting in their high-performance fighters. If you don't eject fast enough, the, the vertical stabilizer will cut you in half. So you have to eject faster than the tail section can sweep through your body. So, they destructively tested per- people and concluded 25 Gs will crush your spine, which is about 1,500 pounds on a load cell, which is still an FAA mandated number. They do crash testing of seats, and the load cell in the crash dummy spine cannot exceed 1,500 pounds. It's a lot easier to crash test a seat as opposed to an entire plane. So this is the most studied instrumented photograph crash in history, is a test crash done in 1994. They were testing a fuel additive that uh, gels the fuel to prevent misting during uh, impact to reduce post-crash fire. And it failed miserably. Uh, what happened, the gel worked, it's just that uh, the design crash was to slide through steel barriers that rip the fuel tanks, but instead they were off a bit and they ripped into the engines. So the fuel was gelled and wouldn't miss, but it still will burn. So leaking fuel directly on the hot engine parts and you had a terrible fire and we have a video of this. So somehow the FAA estimated 19 to 52 simulate passengers would survive the fireball. Don't ask me how. So they're only impacting at 17 feet per second vertical, which will look at some of the design numbers about uh, uh, vertical impact. So how the crash dummy survived the fire, don't ask me, although I guess it's not directly on the fuselage. Uh, presumably, I'm pretty sure they had fire trucks standing nearby, maybe a couple miles away, uh, simulating the situation of uh, rather quick response of fire equipment with some delay of a few minutes. So this is the drop test they did for this t- test crash, they dropped a section of fuselage just 6.2 feet with an impact of uh, 20 feet per second. And want to compare that to uh, a more recent drop test of a uh, composite 787. Uh, the FAA told Boeing uh, prove it's as crashworthy as an aluminum structure, but they didn't tell Boeing how to do that. It basically said, submit something and convince us it's crash-worthy as crash-worthy as aluminum. So they chose to do that by doing a drop test, which they dropped from 15 feet with an impact of uh, 30 feet per second. And and it passed. And one of the things got got passed is a load cell in the crash dummy spine. And this is the drop test after 6.2 feet drop there's very little damage because this is one of the more rigid sections of the fuselage this is the where the wing box where the wings connect to the fuselage at the wing box so there's lots of structural reinforcing to support all that wing load and because it's so strong and not crushing absorbing energy 40 to 60 G's shot straight into the dummy spine so that very little damage would have killed all the passengers. And this is highly developed by now. It, it took them decades to f- figure out how to design everything to respond like something like a human. And this was first mandated in the 60s when they started looking at seat belts. The Fed said, uh, thou shall have seat belts and prove they work. So again, nobody really knew what that meant. and. Uh, the automotive company started on this journey that uh, picked up in the aviation business somewhere along the way. So the government mandates uh, testing of literally an entire family, kids, infants, male, female. There's only one standard crash test dummy for the crash seat for planes. Uh, so. Uh, it's still hard to get something that mimics a human, but there's a there's a big advance in the computerization structural design. Now that you got a a machine that everyone agrees to is adequate for design purposes. You have the repeatability of a machine. Uh, they did a lot of cadaver tests uh, to prove these. Uh, crash test dummies were, In fact, they were still doing that last time I looked, although it's been a few years since I've been following this. And for example, one of the requirements is uh, they'll embed a load cell in the crash dummy's head and drop it just 10 inches on a very rigid block of steel. And the spec is it's got to record 210 to 260 Gs. So that's one heck of an impact. Of course, uh, that's not the way things impact in cars or planes. So uh, we can look at some of the design parameters for vertical impact. Boeing did a survey and decided, pilots think they had a hard landing at about four feet per second, which means uh, the pilots say, Mr. Mechanic, I hit kind of hard, why don't you take a look at everything? The design limit on the the landing gear protecting the plane is just 10 feet per second, which is a drop of just a a foot Third, it's not 18 inches, it's not much anything. Now, there's a crushable element in the landing gear that will absorb a little bit more energy, so there's no expected plane damage up to 12 feet per second. And fatalities expected greater than 25 feet per second and greater, uh, but this is based on surveys in the 80s. So, hopefully, newer planes are better. And I think this Boeing 787 test is an indication of that. And we'll talk about another example crash. Now, there's two couple of issues here. You can always have a severe post-crash fire and kill a lot of people with a modest uh, crash. So they're kind of two separate things. Of course, the harder you hit, the more likely you are to have a post-crash fire. And above some point, you'll... If you hit hard, you have hard enough impact to spray the fuel, you're igniting a fireball. But uh, in terms of uh, fireworthiness, everything's gotten a lot better, significantly better. But there's still no solution to uh, a high impact fuel spray igniting a fireball. That miracle crash I talked about in the Everglades, we had the significant fragmentation of plane that was 37 feet per second vertical impact. And here's the expectations based on these surveys of planes in the 80s of 100% fatalities. Which brings us to this Boeing 777 crash in London in 2008. The approach is mostly a glide But uh, at the very end, with all the stuff hanging down, with the landing gear extended and the flaps extended, you got significant drag. So they typically increase uh, the throttle and thrust at the very end. They're they're gliding all the way down until the very end. Well, these guys hit the advance the throttle at the very end and nothing happened. So, uh, they lost thrust at 720 feet, and they're going just 108 knots at 200 feet. There's no estimate of when they stalled. Now they, they didn't drop out of the sky. If they drop this, they're stalling somewhere around here, but they don't really know which. I'll explain momentarily. So they didn't drop out. If they dropped out of a sky like a rock, they would have killed everyone. They crushed everybody's spine. So there's a there's significant lift, it's just not a lift for normal, correct, safe landing. So the stall speed was not identified in the the study. Uh, They'll do simulations of flights in the simulator, but the simulator is totally based on test flights. Uh, It's unsafe to stall that close to the ground, especially with all that stuff extending. So no one really knows and the CFD cannot add anything, so the CFD is not cannot model upsets or stalling. Plane gets out of position just a little bit, falls out of sky, kills three hundred people. CFD has absolutely nothing to add. It's so far off they don't even study it that way. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm pretty skeptical about uh, extremely complicated computer simulations. Actually, the story gets a little worse. About seven years ago, the FAA mandated a simulated upgrade the simulators to fly deeper in the stall. Uh, And that would be a very massive engineering update. They'd they'd have to solve this problem and they gave them five years to do it. And the deadline passed and nothing happened. Everyone gave up on, I don't know the actual story but I'm gonna call that another CFD failure. Boeing had a couple of test pilots that stalled the 737 over 700 times in support of this anticipated uh, requirement that never happened. And NASA said they could simulate a plane with CFD supplemented with wind tunnel tests, but you'd have to do it for every model plane. Uh, even a 737, there's quite a few of them with different configurations and different dimensions. So why did this one stall, this triple seven in London stall? Of all things is fuel line freeze up, which is a a unique problem. So they redesigned this shell and tube heat exchanger. So this was 25 feet per second vertical impact. Now uh, you got the landing gear extended and they'll absorb some of that energy, but remember it's a kinetic energy velocity squared. So if the landing gear was good up to 12 feet per second, maybe it absorbed a quarter. And they had a reading at 2.9 Gs, but that's kind of a funny number because uh, to get capture the maximum G load impact, you'd have to have accelerometers in many, many locations. I'm going to talk about Dutch roll again. It's historically interesting. And In two recent examples. Am I okay on time here?
1: Yes, yes. You have time uh, till around 1140 okay. Pacific time.
0: Well, Boeing had designed the first swept wing bomber. And it would not fly state- straight. It was unstable. And they solved the problem with the yaw damper, which was very controversial at the time among uh, Boeing and Air Force engineers. Because a lot of people thought the plane should be stable without a mechanical device that could break, but they couldn't solve the problem. Subsequent designs had less and less of this Dutch roll tendency, and it's totally designed out. You still have a yaw damper, but it's there for passenger comfort, not to solve Dutch roll. So there's this coupling between yawing and rolling, and the real problem is this is the problem much more of a swept wing planes. As if you yaw too much, you have this massive unbalance of lift which causes a, a severe roll uh, enough to lose control. So this is the B-47, the thing was just, uh, it was amplifying till uh, something bad happened. Today, today they've designed it out. But it was a problem in the early 707s and uh, a bit in the 727 by the time they got to the 737 it solved. So this is the Boeing 707 in 1959. It's a re- similar to the bomber B-47. And they're doing Dutch roll recovery training. Now, this is back in the late 50s. It's kind of a strange situation. They were killing more pilots training these oddball situations that never occurred during passenger flights. Uh, And finally, it was a serious problem, but uh, everything got better, including the simulations got better to the point where uh, there's very few flight training. Well, I don't think they do any accident scenario training in the air. So anyhow, they're doing Dutch roll recovery training aligned line pilots. And it rolled so violently, they threw three engines and they crashed. And I think they killed five or seven flight crew, one or two survived. And after that, uh, Tex Johnson, the famous Boeing test pilot, he recommended design changes. And the book he wrote, he said, "Don't, don't yaw more than 15 degrees. So they added a ventral fin and they made the tail a little taller to resist this yawing motion. And that helped a lot, but it was still a problem, a diminished problem. So if a bigger tail suppresses Dutch roll, perhaps a smaller tail can create Dutch roll. And we have a a modern Airbus example of that. This Airbus 310 in 2005 had a composite rudder break completely off because of a manufacturing defect. So that reduced the yaw resistance enough to induce a Dutch roll. But as they lowered, descended in the denser air, it damped itself out and the plane landed safely. And in 2013, uh, a tail fell off of a Air Force tanker which is a modified 707. And basically the yaw damper broke, there was a Dutch roll and the pilot didn't have sufficient training to recover from it. You're supposed to recover with the the wings, not with the rudder. Uh, You try to steer the plane with the rudder when the planes yawn, you can exceed the structural loads on the plane and break the tail off, which is what happened here. So a plane is not designed to fly sideways. If you yaw too much you yaw to the left and simultaneously swing your rudder all the way to the right, you're putting more load on the tail section than it's designed for, and it'll break off, which happened here. So that plane crashed and killed the crew. And this Airbus crashed in 2001, shortly after takeoff from New York City, just a month after 9-11. This wasn't Dutch roll, but the pilot oversteered the plane and and broke off the tail section. So we got the same situation. He was flying behind a plane in front of him, I think a 747, so the plane was being jostled from uh, wake turbulence, that was not the problem. The wake turbulence was not a problem of structural uh, strength or flight stability but the pilot was responding to increase passenger comfort. And he was swinging the rudder back and forth pretty much as fast as he could do it. And basically every time he swung the rudder it would yaw and the yaw was kind of overshoot before it stabilized and he created this combination of uh, excess yaw and excess rudder. And it also was an engineering failure of sorts. The engineer said, uh, we designed the plane for how it's meant to be flown. You're not supposed to do that. And the pilot said, you mean to tell me we can break the plane structurally? I thought it was designed so no matter what we did, we couldn't break the plane. And the flight manuals did not specifically call out, don't swing the rudder back and forth as fast as you can. They do now, but they didn't in that model of that plane. So that was another disconnect that crashed the plane. So this possibility was sitting there, I think for like 15 years before all the combinations came together, Uh, considered a bit of a cowboy maneuver. It was not a standard pilot maneuver and most pilots wouldn't have tried it. So you had to have the right combination of uh, circumstances. Also this, this rudder in this specific model was sensitive. It had it could you could swing the rudder back and forth with much less pedal pressure in the cockpit. So it was a, a unique combination. Just sat there till everything came together and crashed the plane. So this is the first and only example of a composite structural failure. We bro- broke off the vertical stabilizer, and I'm trying to show 150 plies of pipe. Uh, vib- carbon graphite reinforced epoxy in the attachment rear lugs. The carbon fiber is only 2 ten thousandths of an inch thick, which would be 15 to 30 human hairs, or 15 to 30 times finer than a human hair, depending on whether it's Swedish or Italian. May all your decompressions be slow. It's an old Irish toast. Are any questions? Any questions? Hello?
1: Look, can you hear me? I think the internet speed is kind of bandwidth kind of You're breaking up a bit. Seems to be okay now. Should we try questions now? Oh, okay. All right, so everyone, so, uh, so Professor, your pre- presentation uh, is really wonderful. Uh, really appreciate it. So, uh, part to everyone. I think the chat room somehow was disabled. Uh, you know, So if you have any question, please type in the Q&A. Uh, or raise the hand. We'll unmute you. So pretty much, we'll do the unmute. So it's better you can interact with the professor directly. So I saw two person raise hands. So Victor, go ahead. You can unmute yourself.
2: Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. I can okay. hear you. Okay. Yeah. So how how much have you worked with the NTSB on some of your, uh, on your research? Did you had quite a bit of work with the NTSB?
0: No, I get asked that a bit. It's like people ask me, Have you ever been in an airplane crash investigation? It's a really big deal. It'd be trying to, it'd be like inviting myself to a murder investigation. But I certainly studied their reports a lot. There's a, looked at a lot of engineering reports and FAA safety reports. There's also a public docket for the more recent crashes. It has significantly more information that nobody seems to find ever. Okay. Uh, I've had more work with AIAA. I've given over 30 talks.
1: OK, so Victor, if you have more questions, you can welcome to come back. So next, uh, Mitch, uh, Dr. Inverwood from JPL. So uh, uh, please speak out.
3: Yeah, hi. Can you all
1: hear me? Yes.
3: OK. Um, I, I, I may have missed this but um, and if I did I apologize but um, <clears throat> one crash I, I, I didn't hear you mention sorry if you did was the Concorde crash um, did, did you address that one and I'm curious if you have any sort of comments on on that particular
0: well no I didn't address it in my talk or in my books I didn't study it it's kind of an oddball crash because they had a tire failure and a big hunk of rubber smacked the fuel tank and set off a pressure wave that ruptured the fuel tank. So that's really an oddball circumstance that can't happen in any other plane. My second book, I did look at a lot of uh, tire wheel failures and takeoffs.
3: Okay, thanks.
1: Uh, welcome to speak out.
4: Oh, you say Kyle?
1: Yeah, uh, Mr. Sweeney.
4: Yes, thank you. Um, I had actually two questions now. For one was for the Malaysia airline crash. What was the official conclusion according to the crash? Like, I appreciate your opinion, uh, like your uh, input on that crash. I was just wanting to see more detail about it.
0: Well, I wrote more about it in my second book, but no, there was no official conclusion. They, they, they really won't until they recover the black box. And I don't, I don't think they will. People don't understand how big the ocean is. It's like trying to find your wedding ring in, a, in New York City with a pen light. I, I just, I mean, if the guy set out to be lost, I don't think it's that hard to do. A total criminal activity. I think the aviation world accepts it as that. Okay. Yeah,
4: and then my other question was like, uh, as far as all the crashes that you have talked about, um, was it usually due to human error or a combination with the engineering errors
0: as well? Well, depending on which bit of data set you grab, the rule of thumb is pilot errors like 50 to 75%. I shied away from that. Although my second book, I had that uh, co-author pilot did a little more with it, but I, I'm I'm kind of focused on engineering insight and interesting stories, and so I'm not a pilot. I'm, I'm hesitant to get into piloting issues. I, maybe I'll directly quote uh, NTSB reports, but I shouldn't be interpreting pilot. Those big planes are incredibly complicated. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: yeah, I was really interested in that talk. Yeah, thank you
1: welcome. Okay, Ed, Mr. Storey. Just a, a quick question as to how quickly
4: do you see the, uh, uh, the engineering problems decreasing um, over the periods that you've appeared in study, which is perhaps the late forties to the present. Um, are they rapidly approaching um, design issues of of only 10% or 5%, or or how would you calculate or how would you describe the reduction in engineering issues?
0: Well, uh, they're about 50 times safer than the beginning of the jet age, which would be, and I'm talking about the commercial jets in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, they're they're so safe now, I don't see them Getting safer that easily, and it's, it's kind of diminished seeing returns. And everyone's expecting a computer to take over everything. I'm not a big fan of computers doing everything. My my favorite example: imagine if a truck wanders onto the runway at the worst time during takeoff. It's the technology to solve that problem, to gauge the distance, and make the decision to alter the thrust or slam on the brakes. How long has that been around? I don't think they'll never do it. The reason they'll never do it is they do a cost benefit analysis, which nobody knows it's occurring. It's almost done secret. It involves putting a price on a human life and trying to estimate how many lives are saved by the new safety. The cost of the new safety is just an engineering study, but then they got to estimate the cost of the improvement, which is lives saved and reduced injuries. Well, if you do that, you do a cost-benefit analysis and something that almost never happens, that, that being a, a truck being on the runway at the worst time of takeoff, you'll conclude you can justify spending almost zero dollars to solve that problem. I think there's probably a hundred little things that almost never happen. I, I don't think it's easy to take the pilot out of the loop. And, and that specific problem again, If if when it does happen, they go nuts pounding on the driver of the truck. They're not going to redesign the plane safety features.
4: So if I may ask one follow-up question, uh, which is unrelated to the first one, uh, are you looking carefully at the certification processes that are being used for EVTOLs and other type of urban air mobility or advanced air mobility type uh, vehicles that are under construction
0: or under experimental uh, uh, use today? No, I'm, I'm, I'm studying as an educator. So I'm looking for, well, first of all, this, it's well, you guys understand how complicated this is. You're all engineers. It really is rocket science. As the size of the book, I, of things I don't understand is only about 10 billion pages long. So my focus is trying to find inf- interesting stories that have engineering insight that I can explain correctly and have confidence I know what I'm talking about. So I, I'm, I'm not in the safety loop, design and safety systems. I'm looking for interesting stories to talk about. Uh, so a
1: any further question?
4: Well, uh, I'd, I'd just add one item from having read accident reports uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, nowhere near as much as I'm sure you you did, sir, but uh, um, on that flight uh, that was coming into San Francisco, I've forgotten the flight number and so forth with the Korean, uh, the Korean air situation, I think there was some question... Uh, And perhaps you've dealt with this in one of your books, but I think there was some question as to whether the Czech pilot who had tremendous experience in this um, was dealing with a Korean cultural issue, uh, which was don't correct the the left seat, don't correct the pilot-in-command, um, especially uh, when it has to happen so quickly and at, at the last moment or two. Um, was that a factor in your thinking or your writing?
0: I think it was mentioned factor, but I don't think it was considered an overwhelming factor because it turns out there's actually, there's a long flight, so there's extra pilots on board and there's a third pilot sitting in the cockpit mm-hmm. actually calling out sink rates, saying you're, you're sinking too fast. So they got, they thought the auto throttle was on and it wasn't. Now that's how I s- explain it in a sound bite. My, my pilot co-author is a bit furious with that. He thinks it blames the pilot too much. And he went into an involved uh, discussion of the computer systems, and it's complicated. I mean, Flying a small plane, you only got three controls, you know, rudders, elevators, and uh, uh, thrust. And uh, but these things, I got the pilot to agree. There's three ways to fly the plane: 100% auto, 100% manual, which are simple to understand. The third way, which is my jargon, but the professional pilot agreed with it, is multiple software selection. So they're flipping through the computer screens making selections that do multiple things at a time. All the basic functions are still there, but that damn computer and the multiple systems is complicated. That's one reason why I don't want to deal with the 737 MAX. It's all proprietary software, which I don't think is publicly available. And it's it, it's a it's piloting issues that have to be interpreted by a pilot. I don't know if it answered your question or six other questions. Oh, no, that's fine.
1: Okay, Ed, if have more questions, you're welcome to, to ask uh, uh, shortly later. So the next one is uh, Daniel, uh, Mr. Uh, uh Welcome to speak up. I think he might have left. Uh, let me see. Okay, so his question is, uh, may you expand upon the APA advanced accident investigation course you took
0: well, University of North Dakota is one of the major flight schools in the country now, that and Emory-Riddle. And so they talked to airline pilots associations into having a three-day crash seminar at uh, UNP. And I talked my way in this, sitting in on this uh, paid uh, training seminar, which is kind of cool. I got to hang out with big plane pilots for three days. But the focus of that training is If they're called to participate in an NTSB investigation, this is what's going on and this is how you should behave. So that was really wasn't crash investigation per se, although they certainly talked about crashes, but it was a training seminar for pilots in case they got called into it.
1: Uh, great, I think that your book, uh, Professor Book and Course, very interesting. If you can forward uh, I mean, the information, we can uh, you know, share with our people uh, here. Okay, um, it's on Amazon. Can... In
0: fact, quite a bit of the book is online in Google Books and uh, Amazon, I don't Yeah,
1: know. that would be great, you know, if you can share with us, you know, people would love to uh, enjoy and learn more and uh, look up your course information. Um, so the next one is by, um, Uh, Mr. Randall Bushyama, uh, do you want to speak on Randall? You you can unmute yourself. Well, if not, I'll read a question for you. Uh, Randall asks: have there been any crashes due to electronic failure, computer failure other than the max? How hard is it to determine uh, electronic or computer failure?
0: Well, computer failure is subject to interpretation interpretation of it you can't blame the computer unless the computer did something directly caused the crash and I'm, I'm not aware of that occurring but I, there's crashes where the computer caused confusion that's in the loop uh, my favorite example of that is Air France 447 crashed in the Atlantic I sometimes talk a lot about that one but uh, I didn't today.
1: Yeah, uh, Professor, I wish you could. Oh, let with let us me mention next a couple time, things.
0: Yeah. Let, let me mention a couple things about that flight. So, uh, Airbus and Boeing have totally different philosophies on pilot, flight safety. For example, cannot stall an Airbus plane. The computer will not let the pilot do something that will stall it. And. Uh, Boeing's philosophy is the pilot should always be in control. But so they have, like, for example, a stick shaker, which is in the history of flying. When you start to stall, the turbulent air shakes the tail section so much, you can feel it in the the controls. So Boeing artificially introduces that when the plane's in trouble. Airbus doesn't do that because they think it's impossible to stall the plane. Well, this plane stalled. Well, it shut off, autopilot shut off because the pitot tubes froze. Or still, they were freezing and unfreezing. So they had valid and invalid uh, airspeeds, and a stall alarm was going on and off uh, intermittently. And all they had to do was maintain straight and level flight and they couldn't do it. They got out of position, crashed the plane. The other contributing factors uh, They couldn't see and they did a study, the Army Air Corps in 1932, that experienced pilots could not fly straight and level without seeing the horizon. So they invented the artificial horizon and all they had to do was use the artificial horizon. They had enough information to fly the plane straight and level, but I think it was, they didn't trust the computer. The official report says there's no explanation why they couldn't fly the plane straight and level. So my my explanation is that computer confusion made them not trust anything. They got out of position and there's no there's no way to recover. That there's, that's, not part, that's not part of the design or training or anything. And CFD has nothing to add. I guess I'm done with that question.
4: If I, if I could just add a, a, a quick part, portion of that, as I understand it, and perhaps you were, you were just dealing with this, uh, Professor, but uh, um, uh, on the Airbus um, design, the, the right control stick um, uh, doesn't respond to the left control stick, and uh, the left seat was the third, um, third pilot on Air France 447. He was the least trained. He thought he was going down he kept pulling back. The guy in the right seat didn't know that was happening. Um, they got up to whatever the number was—45,000 feet or something like that—in Coffin Corner and started to stall. And by the time the the captain, who had been sleeping, who was he was supposed to be sleeping, uh, came forward, they were falling at 10,000 feet per minute, and there was no time to recover.
0: Yes. Well, the. Ca- came in the middle of it, I think it was like four and a half minutes from when the autopilot shut off with an alarm, to total fragmentation in the ocean. The pilot got in in a minute, a minute and a half. He had enough time to do something. Of course, he's walking in the middle of a crisis. He actually applied the speed brakes, which suggests he thought they were having a high speed stall. So all three of them were totally confused. All they had to do was maintain straight level flight, follow the horizontal horizon. There's another trick I like to point out. Well, it's a dark and stormy night. They're they're totally disoriented. You can't walk a straight line blindfolded. Moving in 3D space is more complicated. And it's, uh, it's actually simple physics. I usually explain this with a couple of simple diagrams. When you turn a plane, the inertial forces of turning add go right through your spine. There's no sideways shove. You cannot feel you're turning. Unlike a car, you turn a plane, you're shoved into the door. You turn a car, you're shoved in the door. So I think that's kind of an interesting physical connection to these upsets. You cannot feel turning the plane. So that adds to the disorientation.
1: Okay, next question is by uh, Mr. John Chapman. John, go. Uh,
3: Yes, sir. The question is, is engineering failures are in many ways similar to battle damage, military battle damage. Have you taken any look at some of the survivability improvements that the military has developed, such as the famous Israeli F-15 wing loss, and he still brought it home?
0: Well, you got to understand, like, a, a fighter plane is a N500 Formula One race car, passenger plane is a school bus. They're just totally different designs. The design load, G loads on a passenger plane are 2.5. On a military plane, it's a secret, but it might be like eight or nine G. So they're very t- Plus, all the military crash reports are unavailable, as they should be, because it gets into performance issues.
3: I agree with you, real-time data is very hard to get, but uh, sometimes there are surprisingly similar sorts of things. For example, C-17s have been seriously damaged and uh, still managed to recover uh, unassisted. In some cases, they've been modified on the ground and brought them home. There's lots of different things that are related, you might say.
0: Well, yes, but there's no military crash reports publicly available to be studied.
1: Thank you. Uh, okay, Byron, uh, you have any question? Do you want to speak out? Oh, looks like it is. How about Victor? You raised hand. Do you have another question?
2: Oh no, I didn't. Uh, I, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, the um, that that last question asked what I head up there. Was it any? Yeah, what, what what research you do, uh, military uh, accidents and stuff, And you know, they have had a lot of military accidents in the Air Force, and uh, you said it was unavailable. available. Those, those are reports or incidents are not available or accidents not available to the public for research? Yes. Hmm. Okay. No, I didn't have any other, uh, that was it.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, so, John, I saw your raised hand sign still there. Do you have another question?
3: Oh, that's a negative, sorry.
1: Oh, sorry. All right, so any more questions from everyone? It's a great opportunity.
2: I wanted to ask one more question. You said you had you gotten your training from Emory Riddle Aeronautical University?
0: No, I I'm meant I'm, I'm at the University of North Dakota. Them and Emory Riddle have the two main major flight schools. I just mentioned
2: them as a second major flight school. Yeah, you had to really keep I find you have to really keep up with it. I, I, I have a minor in our aircraft accident investigation aircraft accident investigation we're Riddle. Um
0: through a degree I
2: uh, obtained from him in two thousand and one. And it's covered a lot of this information covering here, but you yours is sort of like a personalized uh account. Uh, whereas we had to concentrate more on NTSB, you know, FAA, type stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, you have a nice refresher. Yeah, I to, it takes a lot of reading up. I guess, I guess you got to keep up with because I read all the, all the accident investigation uh, that they have online you know, or not online, but on television, they have a series that come on and watch those quite a bit. Um, but uh, I appreciate your time though. <laughs> this is yeah, well, small
0: time. planes are totally, small planes. are totally dominated by pilot air. And for my purposes, basically, the more people he, they kill, the thicker the report for me to study. Everything's proprietary. Might as well all be under military lockdown. I, I What I've done is uh, anally researched for years, bits of pieces of information, and strung it together in a, in a narrative because everything's proprietary.
2: Yeah. yeah. They've had accidents in the Air Force, like, uh, for instance, the C-130s, the center wing box failures and stuff like that. I don't know if you've seen those. They had one aircraft. Uh, it wasn't quite military, but it was a military used uh, aircraft. And I think it was spraying there, It was for a fire suppression in one of the forest. And for some reason, the wings snapped at the splice boat. Uh, the center wing, had, the C-130 has a center wing, and then the, the left and right outer wings are attached to it. And where it cracked uh, was the what they call it. Uh, they call it uh, um, the attachment points for the for the outer wings to the center wing box has separated it actually, I guess it was due to fatigue, but uh, it's a ring of about maybe 25, maybe 30 boats, big large boats that hold it on there for some reason it just cracked off of there. And, and but it wasn't detected on the ground by through uh, analysis or inspection didn't it, it, it detect the cracks. They had those type of accidents and they lost the whole crew because you know the wing once the wing split you got two turboprops on one side you just break away. They had a lot of accidents in the Air Force they should release for you know your type of study. Uh, because of, and I don't know how in depth or in detail i will let you get into that because uh, some of that stuff may be classified. But uh, if it's available, I'd
0: look at but I'd only look at it as a similar plane to the commercial planes.
2: Yeah, checking check in some of the C 130 crashes, you'll see some of those C 130s that actually have had center wing box crashes uh, because of the uh, uh, separation of the rainbow fittings on the inner and uh, center, center and inner wing uh, attachment points. They just I guess for some reason they developed cracks and you couldn't detect them with the eye or... Actually, they had at that time, I don't think they had developed a procedure to check them, you know, like x-ray, and it's very hard to die penetrating in that area. So you mostly have to do a visual inspection. And with a visual inspection, this, the eyes are not going to be able to pick up a crack in a, in a, in a, forged, a forged part. So they've had, uh, instances, and they've had to replace the entire center wing. All those aircraft they just didn't too old and just replaced them all as many as they could afford to um, that was just one aircraft but yours did you mentioned the 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 crash they had from the atlantic it was an aircraft that was flying from the atlantic and i can't remember which airline it was it was flying from the atlantic to one of the eastern uh, East, uh, one, one of the uh, eastern european countries and it crashed in the atlantic and it was due to uh, i think it was a uh, P-2. um opportunity picked up pdoc2 or something like that that frozen up
0: yeah that was Air france 447. Oh,
2: 447. four47 okay yeah i was in Afghanistan when that happened and i was wondering um uh, the guys even uh, if even if the, even if the tube had by frozen up they could still see outside i mean the windows wasn't frozen up but they couldn't take relative uh a view of uh, you know of the of the of the earth I mean, they could keep in their eye whether they were unless they're in the clouds i don't know whether in the weather or not but if you can keep your eyes out, of the wouldn't by the seat of your pants for instance, for sake. Um well it was a dark and stormy night. They could they couldn't do, do that. You couldn't do that. Okay, I was wondering what happened in that because I didn't get to know the full uh, the results of it. Um uh, seemed like really? they could have uh, avoided that because that was the only instrument that was off was the uh, airspeed indicator. Yeah, they they, <laughs> so how That's did why they,
0: couldn't, they don't know why they couldn't fly straight and level.
2: So, but they couldn't fly straight and level even though, they, I mean, the airspeed was dropped off. Uh, so they didn't have any relative feel of the airspeed because the airspeed indicator had, uh, had malfunctioned.
0: Well, if they kept, maintained the same thrust and, and kept the plane straight and level, that solves the problem. That's all they needed to do.
2: Yeah, but I was wondering why they didn't do that though. I mean, you, you well, have, an, have an instrument go out, you say, oh, we've got an instrumentation failure or, 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 or an instrument that's, uh, uh you know, that's Defective and stuff, but everything else is good. So you maintain your course, maintain your level. You know, you could maintain that. I just wonder what, what did they get caught up in the automation or something? Did they, but they did couldn't switch something off soon enough, or, or or what? I just well, uh,
0: the official explanation is they don't know. My my explanation is they were overwhelmingly confused by computer issues. Well, who hasn't had a computer issue that they have? There's no way to make any sense out of. Yeah,
1: I'm um, sorry. Okay, uh, this Victor, we can uh, we'll have a Professor coming back to talk about uh, oh. the Airplane Four Four Seven, unfortunately the time is a little up. I think Ed has another question. Ed, do you want to ask? But, professor? Yeah, just a,
4: a very quick one, uh, uh, Professor. Thank you very much for a, a, a wonderful presentation. And and is it possible to get your email address?
0: Yes, it's uh, G Bible like my name at Gmail.
4: G Bible at gmail.com.
0: Yeah. And just type my name into Amazon or Google Books and you'll see maybe half the book up there.
4: Fantastic. Thank you, sir. Of course (laughs) buy
0: them. They make great uh Valentine's Day gifts. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh, uh, Professor, I, I think the time is uh, kind of limited, but there's, I think, a anonymous attendee asked a very quick question. He was saying, uh, Is there any com- commands about helicopters, compression, or any command uh, about those things?
0: Well, I didn't do anything with helicopters. I was at a GE engine plant, surprised to learn it is possible to safely land with no engines, but it's a very difficult maneuver. They have to have a glide slope enough that generates enough rotation so that we have enough lift to survive it. So well, it's possible, but it's difficult.
4: Let me just quickly add, Ken, that uh, I'm a helicopter pilot. Uh, this is Ed Story talking, and and uh, it's a um, uh, it's called an auto rotation, and it actually, you train regularly for it, and uh, it's quite cap- one is quite capable of doing it if you're if you're, recently trained on it.
0: Well, you just use <laughs> helicopter knowledge.
4: I'm sorry, sir. Was that a question?
0: No, it's a statement. You just exceeded and used up and exceeded all my helicopter knowledge. <laughs> <laughs>